0: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live.
1: Welcome to Commons Conversations, a series of interviews with campaigners sharing their experiences and insights into activism, activism, learning in movements, radical history and more. The program is broadcast by Community Radio 3CR and produced by the Commons Social Change Library, a website containing over 1,000 resources for campaigners, which can be accessed for free at commonslibrary.org. Staff at universities across Australia have been suffering for decades from chronic casualisation. Roughly 70% of all university workers are in insecure employment, or even higher at some campuses, with some tasks either unpaid or done on a piecework basis. Employment is mostly seasonal, leaving people without work for months at a time. Underpayment and wage theft are built into operating models of many universities. Management is typically run along corporate lines with a core focus on generating multi-million dollar surpluses and executive bonuses. The result of this is not only rampant exploitation of the workforce, but also a diminishing quality of education due to low morale and a constant turnover of staff. Although still to be resolved, these issues have become more widely acknowledged in recent years, sparking a Senate inquiry and investigations by the Fair Work Ombudsman. This has come about in large part due to campaigns run by casual workers themselves. At the University of Melbourne, campaigning that began in 2019 led to casual workers winning a number of victories, including forcing management to backpay. at most recent count, $31.5 million in stolen wages. My name's Ian McIntyre, and in the interview that follows, I speak with Geraldine Feller, a rank-and-file member of the National Tertiary Education Union and a former delegate with the University of Melbourne's casual network. In the interview, she discusses how a strong casuals group was built around concerted campaigning and a culture of grassroots democracy. How and when did you first get involved with casuals issues at the University of Melbourne?
0: Yeah, so I first got involved um, right at... To sort of halfway through the last round of bargaining. So that would have been sort of 2018, 2019. And I was a casual research assistant at the time at Melbourne Uni. And there were a few of us who were just yeah, quite concerned that casual issues weren't being like seriously prioritised in, in the bargaining process. And that some of the casuals clauses that were being prioritised were actually Potentially undermining of of our rights and our interests. So, particularly uh, a push towards the introduction of periodic employment, um, which are. T- teaching-only positions where people were only paid nine out of the 12 months of the year. And we made a pretty strong argument about the, the problems with teaching-only positions, the importance of maintaining the relationship between teaching and research. So out of those kinds of debates and discussions within the branch, we we formed the Casuals Network. We kind of developed relationships um, between one another, met people, and then, you know, after bargaining had ended, we actually, yeah, decided to move forward with, with forming the network
1: What were the particular, I guess, issues that were spurring this formation?
0: I mean, all of the kind of issues that casuals face across sectors, wage theft, lack of sick pay, just the general lack of permanent positions in the university sector, and all the kind of everyday indignities of casual working universities. The fact that people don't have allocated workspaces, people were doing, I remember we'd we'd, you know, people come to meetings and just be like, I'm sick of doing, you know, having in, you know, very personal, uh, sensitive conversations with my students in corridors. I'm sick of my tutorial rooms being so overcrowded, people sitting on the floor, you know, all of these kinds of issues. I'm sick of not having time to mark properly and give students the feedback they deserve. So all of those kind of classic issues that casuals face in the tertiary sector, but many of them. Are in common with what casual workers face, you know, across the economy. Were, were things that kind of spurred us on to to form the network.
1: What approach to organizing and campaigning did you adopt?
0: Yeah, so we had a, a very rank and file focused approach. So we, from the from the outset, we made you know, democratic decisions via vote in the Casuals Network meetings. We were affiliated to the NTU, um, which I think was the right move, absolutely. I know there's been some debates in in Casuals Networks about that, but we felt it was very important that we were union members and that we were part of the union. And through um, having this democratic rank and file Approach. Uh, we actually were able to shift the politics of the union around casualisation by being a part of it. So that that was our our approach. And in terms of what we actually did, we were pretty quick to quick off the mark with actually just calling rallies, kind of. Yeah, we've got all these issues. We could talk about it for years. We could write position papers. We could write policy documents. Blah, blah, blah. And academic casuals are very inclined to do those kinds of things sometimes for reasons we can all understand. But we had a a very strong focus on the need for actually taking action. And and we did the first demonstration we had, we called just, you know, pretty quickly after we formed the network. It was around a very you know, a small issue, which is the fact that casuals weren't being paid for the working with children's check, which was a mandatory requirement for their work. And even though it was a small issue, it was something that spoke to a lot of the general uh, sense of, I guess, the indignity of the working conditions that people are experiencing, the lack of respect, uh, the fact that casuals are not treated like staff members, you know, in in a serious way in their faculties and departments. You know, people rallied for that, but also for lots more. So we had at the rally, there were placards that had a whole litany of issues that people had brought to the rally, like, yeah, wage theft, the fact that they were doing their student consults in the hallways, you know, all of these kinds of things were what people were talking about. Yeah, I think we had about 100 people at that rally and halfway, literally halfway through the rally, someone from HR had it underneath the chancery, someone from HR you know, came down from their Tower of Mordor and went, okay, all right, all right, you can have it, we'll pay. So it was, yeah, it was a profound experience in the um, the power of, of taking action in that way and something that was, it really, it spurred us on in a really positive direction, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah fantastic. Yeah, quick win. Yes, that would have itself fed into recruiting people to get involved with the Casuals Network. What was your general approach to recruiting and Having conversations and drawing people in.
0: So I guess there's a few things. It was like ha- having taking visible action, and so people actually knew that we were there and that we were doing things. Because I think there's nothing, you know, there's nothing more demoralizing than people coming along to something and being like, "What? What are you doing? Like, how is this actually going to change?" So showing that we were making, we we're trying, even if you know you, you don't always win, it doesn't always work, but we're out there and trying things. Um, so that a lot of the bread and butter of union work, like colleagues, recruiting colleagues, um, visibility in tutors rooms, anywhere where there was a union member, that person has posters and flags to put up, having conversations with their colleagues. And the thing is like, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of talk of conversations. I think in organizing, you can have like a million conversations and it doesn't make any difference, but if you can have a conversation with someone where you're like, come to this rally. We're doing this, that can really make a difference. If people actually have a sense of I can be part of something and I can do something, it's it's a really has a big impact. So I think that combination of, of activity with that kind of, yeah approach of of colleagues organizing and recruiting colleagues was really effective and of course having open democratic places that people could come so having regular meetings that we advertised people knew about that they could come to I think it would depend on what was going on the frequency but generally every two weeks or something anyone could come along to those meetings anyone could vote in those meetings and have an input in into what we were doing
1: so um, the casual network sort of moved from the working with children checks campaign and began gathering a petition for paid lecture attendance. Mm. Um, could you tell us about, I guess, the mechanics of the the petition? You know, other than being used as a means of pressure, were these, was this and subsequent petitions sort of used as a way to kind of inform, recruit and organise?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it was kind of an open letter that people signed on to, petition open letter. In it we linked the issue of pay uh, and wage theft to pedagogy. So we took it to permanent staff members as well as casual members because that's always a problem in universities is the divide between permanent and casual staff members. And we've always had a position in the casuals network that we actually we need to win permanent staff members to fighting for casual issues. That was really successful. We got a lot of signatories. People were very supportive. There was a lot of pressure for it. It's a very obvious issue, really. Like, of course, people should be paid to attend lectures. Teaching a tutorial when you haven't been to the lecture is near impossible and often humiliating because the students actually know what's going on more than you sometimes. And that's a profound de-skilling of the labor of teaching in universities. So we're really committed to fighting for that. We gathered a lot of petition, a lot of signatories on the petition. Uh, and in the process, you know, a recruited people to the union, B had a list of email addresses to, to then contact and say, Hey, we're organizing a rally about this, or this is where the next casuals network meeting is, or whatever it is. And also started developing those relationships with permanent staff. So yeah, it was really it was a really effective mechanism as one of a suite of activities. You never really like you obviously can't win something or very rarely can you win something with a petition alone, but as a first step it was was really good.
1: Yeah, so I wanted to ask how you used that open letter because there was a series of sort of protests and actions that took place around attempts to present it to the dean of arts.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's right. So we called so with following the petition we called for a meeting with the dean of arts he wasn't interested in meeting with us um so we had a rally outside his office and then we decided that we'd actually take the petition to him if he wasn't going to come to us and occupy his office so we had a we occupied his office for a few hours which is exciting um and politically significant for a lot of people i think quite powerful like i haven't heard of that happening a lot in our union, like it was quite a militant move, and and I think yeah, something that was really it really cohered the casuals network together and gave people a lot of courage. So that was really good. We had a you know that rally, another rally the following week. So what happened after that was they brought in these new operating rules to try and deal with the issue. Uh, it was always very cloudy what was actually going on, but essentially. Rather than paying for lecture attendance in most schools, their response to that was tutors can't go to lectures. So it dealt with the wage issue. People weren't being forced to go to lectures that they weren't being paid for, but it didn't deal with the pedagogical issue. So it's still an ongoing problem and it still is today. It's still it's not been one. But what those demonstrations did do was give people you know, a lot of courage in our capacity to actually, you know, push back essentially, push the boundaries of what's normal on campus, what's normal kind of political activity for staff members to engage in. I think even though they're about a slightly different issue, those demonstrations laid the groundwork for the later win about wage theft. So, yeah, it's not a kind of completely linear, but but it laid the political groundwork for that win.
1: And I recall there were sort of various fun things going on where people were doing kind of, you know, Have you spotted the Dean?
0: Well, you know, when when there's a lot of excitement around a political issue, new people come into political activity for the first time, it's kind of a festival of the oppressed. Maybe that's a little grandiose to say, but, you know, people get very excited and are taking matters into their own hands and doing fun things. So, yeah, there was a little... um, I think it was a little kind of photo campaign basically of people looking everywhere for Russell the Dean. He won't meet with us. Where is he? Is he in a phone box? Is he up a tree? Like it was very funny. So, yeah, it was I guess that kind of stuff was emblematic of the level of engagement that people were having and and how people were kind of yeah, new new layers of people engaging in in political activity, not just kind of a hardcore of five lefties on campus.
1: Eventually, you got the arts faculty to start talking about wage issues and and negotiating and, and admitting to the theft. Perhaps if you can tell us a bit about what led up to that, but what got them to sort of budge?
0: We did a whole bunch of data gathering. I wasn't involved in that. Some other activists and delegates were heavily involved in that and put a huge amount of work into it. It takes a special kind of person to really commit themselves to data gathering, and unfortunately it's not a skill I possess. But thank goodness for those people who did. And, yeah, they put a lot of work into gathering a bunch of data to show to demonstrate the the wage theft particularly around marking basically we were marking under a peace rate which was illegal in our agreement it was many more words an hour than could reasonably be expected to be marked um and yeah obviously as i said it was illegal it was illegal as a piece rate under the eba after those occupations of the dean's office hr because you have to kind of understand in universities that they're not coherent like the dean has got his little fiefdom in the faculty the heads of schools have their little fiefdoms. HR are often kind of in conflict with the deans and the heads of schools, or you know, vice versa. So, increasingly, HR is going like, "What the hell's going on here? Like, what are you doing in the Faculty of Arts? This is a real problem." Of course, HR. You know, just out of the goodness of their hearts, um, have been not caring about this at all for the last how many, however many decades, and in many cases implementing it, but they're getting a little bit worried about their liability, that kind of thing. So HR are kind of like, mm, we think there might be an issue here, and actually. I think from memory, they called us after those occupations, Dean's office, and said, "Hmm, maybe we should sit down and have a chat to you." And I'm like, "Hmm, interesting. Okay," and they essentially were like, "Yeah, yeah, there's an issue here because it's quite black and white actually that the peace rates are a problem that they're illegal by applying that pressure in one place." kind of exploiting the cracks that are already existing within management. From there, we started a process of negotiating to essentially to get rid of the the piece rate. It's a very complicated thing, right? Because they want a performance expectation. There's not truth in it, but like obviously you could mark an essay for six hours. You could. No one would. And I would argue that there's countervailing pressures on people's time that mean that they would never, they would never do that. But for... For HR or whatever they're like, there has to be something. So we kind of start in that terrain negotiating what is a kind of reasonable uh, expectation for how long it would take, but it can't be a peace rate, it's very messy, it's just yeah, very challenging. But what we were able to go back and say is that like the peace rates are legal, but there was a peace rate in place, and that piece rate led to wage theft. So to fix that, you actually have to, we have to come up with an estimation of the real time it took, which is kind of a piece, right? Um, But We had to do something to try and get that money back and to calculate it. And then there was just this huge process of negotiation. We, we, from the data we gathered, we said it takes about like 2,000 words an hour is about a reasonable amount of time, which meant that people had been, most people had been underpaid about 50% or more of their wages, you know, of their marking time in that period. HR obviously didn't like that, blah, blah, ongoing, ongoing, ongoing. We're having these big bargaining meetings where casuals are coming in, talking about their experiences, talking about the reality of the work. It was very, very significant, I think, and empowering for a lot of people to be speaking that kind of their truth to power in a way. And keeping in mind that all of this is actually happening outside of an enterprise bargaining period. They don't have to be at the table technically, management, but we've forced them to the table because of because of the campaign. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Be a part of your community radio station.
2: Let's get Situation sorted out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're so polite, it makes me want to, yay yeah, yay yeah, yay yeah, yeah. Oh, we waver everything we want Ooh. and the take the nothing we already have. And I, I, I'm waiting on hold for something to blow. All is Reachin' as clear as day yet That smallest move remains a mile away So we while away Although we know A bit of our bits and it just seems We can't get round to catching round to it And sometimes it makes me ache More than I can take Take it now Someone would wrote All the world a stage now All right the truth comes written somewhat different on that page I know this script speaks from the start Because ordinary
1: listening to Commons Conversations on Community Radio 3CR. You just heard The Power is Yours by the Redskins. My name is Ian McIntyre and in today's program I'm chatting with Geraldine Feller about a series of campaigns run by the Casuals Network at the University of Melbourne. We rejoin the conversation at a point where Geraldine discusses how negotiations with the University over wage theft employed a big bargaining approach.
0: Often in unions, there's a kind of small group of elected representatives who sit down with management and then report back to members. And the approach that we took was actually was different to that, which was having as many people as wanted to be, as many members as wanted to be in the room with us. So it wasn't just it was a more direct line um, between workers and bosses that wasn't as mediated by a small group of people so it also meant accountability because all these people in the room so you know I'm not and I'm not certainly not suggesting that anyone would cut a dodgy deal but that certainly was off the table because we're all there watching watching them so it was accountability in terms of what the officials or the representatives were doing and it also meant that uh, it was a demonstration of our power uh, that first meeting was like, it was felt like a rally there were like 30 of us all in our union colors with our union flags you know marching up the steps into the into the meeting with hr and they were like whoa whoa we haven't booked a room that's big enough like oh there's so many of you and we're like yeah there's a lot of us like <laughs> get used to it yeah it was really um really effective in that way and applying pressure on management and and holding um the union accountable to its members
1: with the lockdowns and I guess the overall sense of fear and confusion around the virus, kind of economic impacts and and the huge amount of layoffs, particularly of, of casuals. Yeah, how did you respond to that?
0: Yeah, look, it was really hard. Like the fact that we couldn't, and not just us, the climate strikers, like social movements across the board and unions across the board basically couldn't protest for two years. Um, because of the laws. My opinion is that we should have been able to find ways to protest safely, and I think we could have, but, you know, that was impossible. We couldn't even do car convoys. That you know, I, I was actually fined for participating in a car convoy for refugee rights, which is, you know, entirely COVID safe. It put us backwards. It was, it was really, really damaging. But we did obviously find ways to keep going. Um, we had really good online meetings. God it was such an intense time I just remember being on the phone like every day we would always be talking to each other on the phone always in Zoom meetings like we actually I think did a really good job of maintaining the the momentum as as much as we could in those circumstances
1: out of the impact of the the lockdown there were a number of events that happened at different universities in terms of you know people responding to to layoffs mm. and attempts to make cuts and so forth. And one of the things that happened at Melbourne Uni was some campaigning around reimbursement for, for financial damages.
0: We had a rally right at the beginning of COVID. About I think maybe sick pay is what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, we had a rally right at the beginning. It's it's um it was such a hectic time, but yeah, Pretty no. sure it would have been like March 2020, actually. In hindsight, probably a week before the first lockdowns, because I remember we we're all like obsessively sanitizing our hands. And yeah, a big rally in March and occupation of a building, which was where the kind of COVID response team were meeting. And that was yeah, calling for ca- for sick pay for casuals. And that was again, we won that the next day. I mean, that was a real testament to the organising that we'd done in the. You know, year before, because we we're able to just pivot immediately and be like, "Oh, this has come up. We're doing this," you know, super quickly. And then, of course, there was the jobs protection framework, which, yeah, was a suggestion from our national leadership that we should do a deal with university management, accepting you know cuts to paying conditions in response to some very, very dubious promises in inverted commas around saving jobs. And at Melbourne Uni, we voted that down. I, I think because people had the confidence, particularly the casuals, the confidence of actually fighting and winning, we were able to say to our permanent staff member colleagues, like, please don't accept this. Like we can actually fight. We can win. We need we need our leaders to be saying, how are we going to defend our jobs without losing, you know, paying conditions? And and that was really positive. I know, you know, there were debates on campuses everywhere, but I don't think you'd be hard pressed to find an example where a job was saved because of those frameworks. But certainly, very easy to see where a lot of damage was done in in the branches that accepted it.
1: So lockdown uh, starts to ease up or temporarily yeah. ends. Yet you, you were negotiating with the with HR about this formula for for back pay and how things were going yeah. to go forward. And then you ended up going to the Fair Work Commission, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that and how that led up to the action that followed.
0: Because the Commission, and the Ombudsman are separate. Ombudsman was kind of checking it out. They were like, mm, there does seem to be some issues in universities, and now they're inv- currently investigating almost every university. Um, but the fair, so the Ombudsman are kind of compliance, uh, and they do tend to look to kind of scrutinise employee employers, sorry. The commission is, yeah, kind of, I guess, the boss's court, basically. So we we took them to the commission. We said, we've got a dispute with you. Um, we took them to the commission with our data and all of that. Uh, and essentially um, in the commission, the university said to the commissioner, well, this is all very well, but we don't accept your jurisdiction, <laughs> which I, to this day, as someone who is not a lawyer, struggled to understand, um, but it essentially meant like stuff you to the commission, and so we kind of left that with a sense of well, we tried the legal route, um, and as many of us have been argued the whole arguing the whole time, you know it was good to try it, but it was very instructive in the limitations of that approach. So then we kind of had two options one was to take the 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 case to the federal court uh, which would take many many years and the other was to you know to continue campaigning uh, and of course those weren't mutually exclusive we could we could do both and that was a decision we came to so yeah We'll take it to the federal court, but we're not going to rely on that. We're not going to put our eggs in that basket. That can potter along, keep going, but we need to really ratchet up our campaigning to, to win this politically. We called a rally outside the Vice-Chancellor's mansion, which you know listeners might be probably aren't familiar with but it's an enormous corner block mansion inclusive of a turret in Parkville which I think is worth about nine million dollars last time we checked maybe seven million dollars it's a huge piece of prime real estate purchased by the university solely for for the vice chancellor to live in we organized a rally outside there making the point that while he's living uh, in luxury you know we're having our our wages stolen and in response, myself and another delegate um, got an email from HR accusing us of coercion and threatening to take us to the Fair Work Commission ourselves, um, like as individuals. So that was, yeah, the day before the rally. The NTU backed us up, which was, you know, um, we're very grateful for and, of course, you know, was the right thing to do. But, yeah, very, very glad that that happened. So they, Sarah Roberts, kind of called HR and gave them a blast and we made we met immediately we kind of said this is what's happened casuals network met me and the other delegate were very much in favor of going ahead um with the rally and collectively we decided that we would do that we withdrew our case in the fair work commission because it wasn't going anywhere and said well we're we're going ahead with the rally the next morning as we were setting up for the rally, um, we got a call from HR again um, with on a very different tone. This time they were like, yep, sure, okay, fine, Duncan, the VC is happy to pay your money back. So it was a pretty amazing moment. And we were like, great, thank you so much. We'll take the money and, and we'll go ahead with the rally because it doesn't, you know, wage theft isn't the only issue facing casuals. So we had this extraordinary rally of hundreds of people in the knowledge that we had you know had won the wage or well, won an element of the wage theft issue and yeah gave people a lot of confidence it's one of the one of the highlights of my political life thus far <laughs>
1: <laughs> fantastic what so what role were media stories playing in pushing the campaign forward at this time and pressuring the university
0: yeah there was lots of media stories which were really good you know people lots of casuals were very brave in stepping up and talking openly about their experiences, um, which is always a risk. And that really, that I think it was good for people to kind of, you know, you get confidence when other people stand up and talk about what's going on. Um, and it obviously put enormous scrutiny on the university. So that, that was really good.
1: What do you think were some of the reasons why this particular campaign kind of held together and, and what are some of the lessons that um, mm-hmm. people could draw from it?
0: I mean, I think, I guess the first thing I would say is it's anyone involved in or, you know, leading or active in a casuals network is doing very hard, important work. You know, all universities are a little bit different and we're all dealing with different dynamics. So I wouldn't want to kind of instruct or anything like that or come across in that way. But I guess a few of the things that I've reflected on from from our experience, I think one of the most important things that we did was take decisive action quickly and in response to issues as they arose. So I'm not talking about kind of rally after rally after rally where people just get fatigued and can't see the point. That's that's not what I mean. But I do think sometimes there can be a bit of a tendency to think, oh. Before we do anything, we've got to wait till we get this number of members or this percentage of members or, you know, until this point. And sometimes, like, there's there's an element of truth in that you don't want to just go so out on a limb that, you know, you're in trouble or whatever. But you do have to push ahead of quite where you are, I think, because it otherwise it becomes a vicious cycle. Like, we can't take action until we have X percentage of members and we'll never get that until we take action. So it just becomes this kind of self-perpetuating perpetuation, self issue. And the other thing, I guess, is like we had some bad rallies. We had some rallies where 10 people showed up and like it's not the end of the world. Like, you know, sometimes you just have, well, I don't really ever think a rally can be bad, but sometimes you have a very average little thing. Maybe you put heaps of work into it and it just didn't come off. And that's just life, like that's just politics. Sometimes it happens and it doesn't work and you learn from it, you think about what it could have done differently, maybe the timing wasn't right, whatever. But you don't really lose anything from that. You only lose from not doing anything. So, yeah, I do, I guess that kind of just pushing, pushing beyond what maybe just a little further than you think you can do, I think can be quite good, but it's obviously easier Easier said than done. And the other thing I would say is that we were very lucky. There were some things that we were very lucky with that not everyone has. So we had some people, some very. It wasn't all relying on one person. You know, we had a group of people uh, who shared a common perspective. We had a branch committee that we were able that weren't that we were able to to convince and pull along with us in our strategy and eventually a very sympathetic branch committee that we could were part of uh, and worked really closely with. I guess what it kind of became had a had a momentum of its own in that we kept kind of winning things and then we did end up getting more resources. That also helped. So yeah, it it's it was a kind of confluence of factors. But I think, yeah, most importantly it was taking decisive action, calling rallies, having a really clear rank-and-file approach to organising that that was effective.
1: Tell us a bit about what's happened since. So, you know, the university caved to a certain degree in November 2020. Some back payments were made, but then you needed to keep the pressure on them.
0: Yeah, so that's right. The university caved and, I mean, the back payments, just to, I guess, one of the important things to talk about as well is the impact that that had on people's lives. So... One person, a guy in his sixties, um, he w- had the biggest claim. It was close to a hundred thousand dollars, and because of that, he was actually able to fund his retirement. One woman, a single mom who had serious dental issues that she hadn't been able to attend to for years, who was able to do that because of the back pay. Like really, really significant changes to people's lives happened going forward. I think I'm no, I'm no longer a member at Melbourne Uni. Um, I've I've moved on to a different campus, but the the issues kind of immediately after I think and continuing are around the fight for real jobs, because the thing is is that wage theft like it will remain it will always be there while we have suchly le- such a heavily casualized workforce in universities, and I think the challenge for ca- for casual activists and the union as a whole is articulating a really big vision of how we securitize the workforce and not into shitty teaching only roles that are, end up hyper hyper exploitative um, and mean that people can't do their research but into proper teaching and research positions there should be we should be looking at creating thousands of new positions across the sector to move people into that secure employment so yeah, I guess that's that's a big task for us now. And it's yeah, obviously a big one, but yeah, it's gonna take some pretty serious industrial action and big a big fight, but I think I think it's um possible. Anything else you'd like to, to mention? I guess the last thing I would say is that yeah, I mean it's it's so good to talk to you, Ian, and tell this story, but yeah, so many people were involved in that fight at Melbourne Uni. I'm just just one person of many who could all tell the same story in in various different ways with different emphasis, I'm sure. But yeah, it's been a a really amazing collective struggle I've learnt so much from and yeah, it's very inspiring. It's been very inspiring for me.
1: You've been listening to Commons Conversations on Community Radio 3CR. You just heard an interview with Geraldine Feller about campaigns at the University of Melbourne which secured $31.5 million in back pay for wage theft. Today's program was produced by the Commons Social Change Library, a website containing over 1,000 resources for campaigners, which can be accessed for free at commonslibrary.org. Thanks for listening.